Praise the Lord. Today's reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 26. And we'll be looking at verse 36 to 39, which is going to be page 997. And also we'll look at Matthew chapter, uh, also uh, verse 45 to 50 of that in Matthew chapter 27. Then 33 to 35 is in page 9. We are going to take from page 997 to 999. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Let's go to 45 to 50. Oh, sorry. Let's go to 27. Yeah, 45 to 50. From noon or to 3. Oh, sorry, I'm missing something here. 33, 27, 33. They came to a place called Gogota which means the place of skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, and they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is the king, the, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by heard insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priest, the, the, the teachers of the, no, go down to 45 now, to 50. From noon or to three in the afternoon, darkness came all over the land. About three, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, 
lama sabak tani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine, vinegar, put it in a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up the spirit. This is the reading of the Lord. Thank you very much, Patrick. Sorry to make things difficult by um, jumping all over the place with uh, that reading. Um, <clears throat> three Bibles is probably too much uh, just for this, these purposes. I'll just keep the, the one. Um, hopefully it'll make sense as we go through why uh, we're looking at different parts of that passage. Let's pray um, before uh, we start. But just before we pray, if you could perhaps just flick back to chapter 26, verse 36. And then you know you're in the right place to begin with. 26, verse 36, headed Gethsemane. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, please send your Spirit to us this morning so that Christ might dwell in our hearts by faith. And we pray that together, as you help us to understand more about the cross of Christ, we would grasp the height, the breadth, the length, and the depth of your love for us, Father, in and through your Son, Jesus. Amen. So as we've already said, this, this morning and for the next uh, few Sunday mornings, we're going to be talking together about uh, different aspects of the cross of Christ. If you're not used to coming um, to, to church here, you may wonder, well, why are we really bothering focusing upon the cross? Yes, of course, um, the cross is a great example, you may say, but why not focus upon the life and the teaching, even the resurrection of uh, Jesus Christ? Others of us who are perhaps more familiar will say, yeah, we know why we're, we're focusing upon uh, the cross. It's the heart of Christian faith. That's why we're looking at it. It tells us that we are sinners whom God has loved. That's why we're concentrating on it. But perhaps um, you know you're a sinner, but you don't really feel quite often that you are a sinner. Perhaps you know that you are loved by God, but actually your heart uh, often feels a little bit stony cold. Or perhaps you're involved in serving here at Christchurch, and you know that that's really good for you. You're not actually thinking about giving up, thank you. But you don't quite have the compulsion to serve that you once had. Or just maybe, and, and here we're getting really honest, if we can do this with ourselves, we know that we should love God but if we're getting really honest with ourselves, we do wonder sometimes whether we've lost our first love. Well, if so, we need to spend time at the cross. Could it be that we've forgotten? Could it be perhaps that we've never really grasped the cross? Now, today we're really starting 
at the epicenter, if you like. The, we're going to be thinking about the cross as propitiation. Propitiation. Now, don't worry if you've, uh, you're completely unfamiliar with that word, perhaps never heard it before. It's a simple idea. We'll, we'll break it down. Basically, it means that the effect of Jesus' death was to avert God's wrath from us. That's the idea. That Christ's sacrifice averts or appeases or pacifies the wrath of God that we deserve. Simply stated, Christ's sacrifice propitiated the wrath of God, making God propitious or favorable towards us. Let me just, uh, let's just step back for a minute and just take a little bit of a broader view and we can then see why we're, we're actually looking at this particular aspect of the cross. Because broadly speaking, the cross has been presented to the church in its effect, that is, the effect of the cross has been presented to the church in, in three different ways. The first is about the effect of the cross on us, and this is the one which we're perhaps familiar with, or one of the ones we're familiar with. So that the, the cross is a great, ex- it, it reveals to us God's um, love, it reveals to us God's hatred of sin, and it reveals to us an example by which uh, we can uh, live the Christian life, a life of, of sacrifice. We're familiar with that. That's the first view. There's a second view which we're also familiar with. And that is the idea that the cross has an effect on things kind of outside of us. So the cross has, um, it defeats Satan and sin and, and death. We're familiar with, with that idea as well. But there's a third presentation of the effect of the cross. Uh, and that says yes to the first view and yes to the second view. It says yes, the, the cross is a revelation of God's love. Yes, the cross is a revelation of our sin. Yes, it is an example. Yes, the cross does defeat Satan and sin and death. But the third view adds something critical. And the critical thing it adds is this, that the cross has an effect not just on us and things outside of us, but the cross has an effect upon God himself. And it says that God was propitiated. And because God was propitiated, it has all of these other effects that we've been talking about. So as we dig into this idea of propitiation, we are really looking at the heart of the gospel together. The precious, sparkling gemstone of God's dazzling love and grace. Now, the word propitiation pops up four times in the New Testament. It's in Romans 3, Hebrews 2, and twice in John's first letter. Uh, But you might not have spotted it reading your, your Bibles, because if you've got the NIV, as we have, it translates that word... Uh, and that that word family, as sacrifice of atonement. Now, it's an okay translation, but it's a bit weak, and the old King James Version had it better by sticking with what the word meant, which is propitiation. 
So it is there in our Bibles. The word actually does appear, if somewhat hidden by the New International Version. But it's also there in concept as well as in terms of of the, the actual word. It's there in concept right the way throughout the Bible. It's there in the Exodus. It's there in the sacrifices uh, in Leviticus. It's there in Isaiah's famous suffering servant songs. But what the Old Testament reveals to us in bud, the New Testament reveals to us in full flower. And propitiation happens in the Bible, God's wrath averted, in two places in particular, which is the two places I want us to to go to in our reading. The first is a garden, the second is a hill. The garden of Gethsemane and then Golgotha itself. So first of all, Gethsemane. And what we see at Gethsemane is that the cup of propitiation is tasted. The cup of propitiation is tasted. Now Matthew's account Uh, tells us that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. Or as Mark's account puts it, he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Then Jesus said to Peter, James and John, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It is for good reason that Jesus is called the man of sorrows. Because as he enters that garden, something begins to cause him profound spiritual and mental trauma. What was it? Well, our Lord Jesus gives us the answer in his prayer to the Father, which focuses upon the cup. He is traumatized by this cup, a cup he will drink at Golgotha, but now tastes in Gethsemane. Now, the cup is the cup that's referred to in a number of places in the Old Testament, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and in the New Testament. There's a reference in Revelation 16, where God is said to give to his enemies the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. In other words, the cup is the cup of wrath, stored up and poured out for deserving men and women. See, the God of Scripture is a God who is appalled at human evil. And and if we think about it, would we really have it any other way? Would we rather not be appalled at God if he wasn't appalled at human evil? If he was morally indifferent to all that stuff we see out there on the news and those thoughts which we perceive in our own hearts and sometimes even put into action, if he was morally indifferent to that, would we not be appalled at God? Our God is holy and just and pure and has a holy and jealous anger when his creatures spurn his love and when they turn to give their lives to things that are not God's. And yet notice, it is Christ, the spotless 
sinless one. It is he who is facing the wrath of God in Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. And Christ, the innocent one, knows that his pressing and crushing under the wrath of God is imminent. Why? Why him? Isaiah prophesied that one day the Lord would say to his people, See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that makes you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. Why was that? Because, well, in Gethsemane, the cup was handed to Christ to drink. And as Christ begins to contemplate drinking that cup, his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The the mere thought of it nearly kills him. So great that Luke tells us in his account that, that the Father sent angels to strengthen him so that he didn't die literally there and then. Luke also adds that being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Bear in mind that the night is so cold that the soldiers need to build fires to warm themselves around and yet our Lord is sweating. Blood. He is so agitated that his capillaries burst, mingling blood with sweat. It's what the medics call hematohydrosis. Now, this awareness of the Father's plan isn't entirely new for for Christ. After all, when when he started his ministry, John the Baptist came along and said, look, the Lamb of God. And he had often told his disciples that he would suffer and die, and he'd he'd even used the language of the cup with them. So it's not entirely new. But here in Gethsemane, his awareness grows. He is mere hours from Golgotha, and at this point, the Father chooses to expand his awareness of what's going to happen to him. That soul-crushing horror that he is going to endure. And as he looks into the abyss, well, quite naturally, his humanity recoils at what he sees. And his fear is not because he fears death per se. That's That's not what it is. What he sees is the dreadful judgment of God and the judge himself full of righteous fury. However, despite this natural recoil, Christ doesn't refuse the cup that is handed to him, nor is he forced to drink it. 
Yes, the father places the cup into his hand, but despite his deep distress, he commits to drinking it for us out of obedience to his father, out of love for us. Christ is made willing to drink. When he prays in verse 39, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He is not, he's not passively submitting. He's not an unwilling victim here. See, some have criticized uh, this understanding of the cross as, you probably heard the phrase, a cosmic child abuse. Jesus is being forced to die against his will here. That's what they're saying. But it is nothing of the kind, nothing of the kind. Despite the natural recoil of his true humanity, our Lord Jesus goes willingly to the cross without implying any sin at all on his part, he learns obedience in Gethsemane. Just notice how his commitment grows through the passage. He starts by saying, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then the second time, verse 42, second time he prays, he simply says, may your will be done. There seems to be a progression there. And then after praying the third time, as he comes back to his sleepy disciples, he says, look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of, men, of sinners. Rise, let us go. His action, in other words, is a learned obedience and a voluntary, willing obedience. It is true that the Father puts the cup into his hand. It is true that at the bitterness of the cup, he recoils within himself. It is true that his obedience develops and grows in Gethsemane. But he must drink it. He must drink it. And he doesn't refuse to drink it. He commits to drink it because he willingly commits to make propitiation for his people. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ determines to drink that cup. And at Golgotha, he drains it to its dregs. That's our second point. The cup of propitiation drained. Golgotha, the cup of propitiation drained. And here, supremely, we see that the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus was a propitiatory sacrifice. Christ bears the wrath we deserve in our place as our substitute. Now, between Gethsemane and Golgotha, our Lord experiences a whole catalogue of sufferings, physical, psychological, spiritual. But worse is about to follow. On the cross, the sufferings reach their excruciating zenith. 
as the moment arrives, Christ refuses the drugged wine he's offered. He refuses to mitigate his agony. He refuses to dilute the wine of the fury of God's wrath. But instead, for six hours, he endures hell on earth. After the first three hours, and here we're in chapter 27, after the first three hours, the land is plunged into a supernatural darkness for three further hours. It was a darkness like that that Egypt faced when the Lord judged that nation. It was a period of, no doubt, very eerie silence. And towards the end of those three hours, the the silence is suddenly shattered by a loud cry from Christ's lips, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a cry of dereliction, of abandonment, of forsakenness, of propitiation. What did it really mean for Christ to be forsaken? Have you ever wondered what that meant? I think we have to admit we we do walk into the realm of mystery to, to some degree, but something can be said. We know what it doesn't mean. Forsakenness did not mean that the eternal union of Father, Son, and Spirit was ruptured. So the desertion that he experienced on the cross was, was not, it wasn't absolute. There was no Trinitarian rupture. Nowhere are we told that the Father was angry with the Son on the cross or that the Son became hateful to the Father on the cross. We're we're never told that anywhere. In fact, it is actually just the opposite of that. Do you remember Jesus said in John 10 that the Father loves me? Why? Because I lay down my life. See, the Father's love for the Son increases with every single act of obedience that he made throughout his life. And so it is a mystery that at the very moment the Son experiences the Father's wrath, the Father loves him the most. Somebody wrote, the Father never loved him more than at the very time when the Father abandoned him. So propitiation isn't about a broken trinity. So what then does forsakenness actually mean? Well, it means, and we're struggling, but it means that the Son's sense of divine love and grace and peace was replaced by a sense of wrath and vengeance resting on him. His cry was a cry of the deepest anguish So nowhere does it say that the Father-Son-Spirit relationship was ruptured 
or that on the cross the Father hated the Son. No, it doesn't say that, but it's but he lost all sense of love and knew wrath and condemnation. God dealt with him as if he were exceedingly angry with him. As though he were the object of dreadful wrath. Propitiation wasn't some mechanistic or mathematical transaction. It was personal sacrifice. The Scottish uh, minister, Rabbi John Duncan, he concentrated it all for us in a lecture that he gave. It was reported, he, he said to his students, do you know what Calvary was? What? 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 Then with tears on his face, it was damnation. And he took it lovingly. That's what Calvary was. Loving, propitiatory sacrifice. See, both those first and second views of the cross needed to be, need to be supplemented by what went on fundamentally that the cross affected God. See, both Gethsemane and Golgotha show us that the sacrifice of Jesus was a propitiatory sacrifice. Gethsemane was the cup of wrath in preview. Golgotha was the draining of that cup to its bitter dregs. And together they bear witness to the wonderful fact that when Christ died, he endured God's wrath in our place and as our substitute. So what should its effect, the effect of propitiation and grasping this, if we do, by the Spirit, what, should, what effect should that have on us? Well, three things I just want to touch on. Speaking to, to those of us who tend to view our sin lightly, which is all of us, propitiation shows us the true gravity of our sin. One of our previous church members, his job was to um, go around supermarkets and to calibrate or recalibrate uh, their scales. Well, Gethsemane and Golgotha are scales which rightly calibrate our sin for us. See, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't, he didn't drink just in case we might do something wrong or because of some minor infraction. Now, of course, not all sin is the same, but all sin is grievous and deserving of wrath. It is deserving of a wrath so terrible in majesty that given the choice, we would opt to face all of the armies of the world combined instead of facing the wrath of God. 
But the cross is a place where we can be honest about our sin without succumbing to despair. See, wonderfully, Jesus drank that cup of wrath in order to offer us the cup of salvation. The Apostle John famously wrote, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But he also said, whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. There is no other propitiation than the Lord Jesus Christ. Later in his letter, John wrote, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. See, we should be staking our all on the fact that Jesus Christ drank that cup for us. Because if we don't, we'll be made to drink that cup for ourselves. Gethsemane and Golgotha recalibrate our sin scales. But they are also a tape measure of God's love. See, our forgiveness wasn't easy-peasy. It required bloody sweat and deepest darkness. It was a loving sacrifice that he willingly made. And that should really strengthen us if we tend to doubt God's love for us. We who perhaps sometimes feel our own sins so acutely, we just can kind of convince ourselves that we're beyond the pale. God can't possibly love me, we say. Not true. Not true. Do you know what? The cross did not make God love you. God so loved you, the world, that he gave his one and only son. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. His love came first, in other words. His love came first. The cross didn't turn a furious father into a loving father. Jesus didn't change a a father of wrath into love. The son of God loved you and gave himself for you. But it is equally true to say that the Father loved us so much that he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now, by the way, this um, kind of puts clear blue water between any kind of pagan idea of propitiating a god through an animal or a cereal or even a human sacrifice. For it was no mere human that propitiated God. In love, God propitiated himself. Immeasurable love. Cannot be emphasized enough that the cross didn't change God from wrath to love. God loved us when he was most angry at us. God doesn't love us because Christ died. Christ died because God loved us. His heart for us was unchanged. But the cross changed his dealings with us as judge. The hymn writer 
Augustus Toplady, great name, he understood this, this perfectly when he wrote this. Payment, God cannot twice demand. First from my bleeding surety's hand, first from Christ's hand, and then again from mine. And then in another uh, hymn, which we're going to sing uh, in a moment, no wrath remains for us to face. We are sheltered by his saving grace. No double payment, no future wrath, only future glory awaits those who trust in the death of Jesus. Weigh our sin at Golgotha and Gethsemane, but also measure God's love. God propitiated himself, a love of infinite depth and eternal duration. Lastly, then, propitiation speaks a word for those weary in service. For both Gethsemane and Golgotha are a mirror for true humanity. Because Christ is the perfect man who leaves the perfect example. He reflects what we can be. Sure, we can't drink the cup of wrath. But we see his obedience. We see his love to the Father and for us. And because he loved us, we can love. Because he served us, we can serve. Because he sacrificed for us, we can sacrifice for others. Whenever I read about the Baptist uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon, I'm, sh- I'm struck by just, just how fruitful his life was. It's, it's incredible. He pastored a huge church. He authored 135 books. He preached over 3,500 sermons. And he founded an orphanage and taught at his own pastor's college. Whilst having gout and depression and uh, later in his life, an invalid wife. Many have tried to analyse what compelled him. But the answer is found on his headstone, and it's there in West Norwood, where we find the third verse of the hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood, which says this, As since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Spurgeon was compelled by the cross. If you are weary in your service, spend time at Gethsemane and Golgotha. Spend time at Gethsemane and Golgotha. Weigh the gravity of your sin measure the depth of his love. And then we too will be able to better mirror the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Why? To make propitiation. To drink the cup of wrath. And to offer us the cup of salvation. Let's take a minute just to reflect upon the holy ground we've been standing on today, really.
And then I'll lead us in prayer. Father, it is holy ground we've been standing at, on, and uh, we know that we can't grasp it all or take it all in, but we pray that your Spirit would enable us to grasp just a little bit more of what happened on that day when Christ died for us, drinking that cup of wrath we so richly deserved. Thank you that he offers us the cup of salvation that he deserved and we don't. Amen.